Thanks for listening to the podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sunday, visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. Well, uh, today we turn the page and enter uh, stage two of the series. Uh, And this second stage we've titled Prophets and Kings. And in this sort of mini-series, we'll be exploring the birth, calling, and purpose of the nation of Israel. Where does Israel fit in the biblical storyline? Uh, How did they come about? Uh, What was their uh, purpose and how did their story unfold? We'll take uh, the next five weeks or so exploring those questions. And then just so you know where we're headed, we're going to take a break for uh, Palm Sunday and Easter, which aren't too far away. And then coming out of Easter, we'll uh, kind of dive headfirst into a longer series going through the book of Isaiah and studying Isaiah and uh, the prophets as kind of a way, a work up to uh, our exploration of the New Testament. Uh, So for now, uh, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus 1, uh, verse 1. And uh, as you're turning there, I will address the lingering question in many of your minds. How are we just now getting to Exodus? Why did we spend so long in the book of Genesis? We actually started in the book of Genesis in late September of last year, uh, and now it's March, and we're just getting into Exodus. But the reason that we spent so long in Genesis is that we really believe the book of Genesis is fundamental to understanding all that follows in the rest of Scripture. It really sets the scene with God and his creation and his image bearers and their rebellion against him and uh, his choosing of Abraham and, and Abraham's family to then begin to bring things back on track. And so the rest of scripture in many ways is just answering questions that were posed by the book of Genesis. How will God rescue and redeem his people? How will he bring humanity back into the goodness of the garden and eternal life with him? Who is the promised seed from Genesis 3 who will crush the head of Satan but be wounded or killed in the process? How is God going to use this very flawed family of Abraham in, uh, in his mission to bless the entire world? Who is the victorious king who will come from the line of Judah? Will Abraham's descendants walk in righteousness and justice? Will they trust in God and the coming Messiah as Abraham did? Well, you have to turn the page and keep reading in order to find out. As the book of Genesis ends, We see the family of Abraham has progressed several generations uh, to Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob's 12 sons. And as the book closes, we get a picture of this little family or tribe, about 70 people in all, uh, headed down to Egypt under the blessing of Jacob and Pharaoh himself. 
Things are looking good as Genesis ends. We pick up here in Exodus 1, verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel, or Jacob, who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have come, become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor of brick and mortar and all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The Israel, oh, we'll stop there for now. The Israelites have gone from 70 favored guests by the invitation of Pharaoh to thousands and thousands of oppressed slaves. And interestingly enough, if you were reading the book of Genesis closely, you would actually know that this was coming because God told Abraham in advance what was going to happen. If you think back, yes, to the book of Genesis, God made a several covenants with Abraham. And in one of the covenants, if you remember, Abraham falls into a deep sort of visionary sleep. And in this uh, powerful vision, he sees God in the form of a, a smoking pot and a flaming torch going through this sort of covenant row, pledging himself to Abraham. And if all of that sounds weird or confusing, uh, don't worry about it. Here's the point. Right before God walks through and pledges himself to Abraham, this is what he says. Then the Lord said to Abraham, know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Interesting. God just told Abraham what is going to unfold in the first half of the book of Exodus. 400 years of slavery. I'll free them, and they'll come out with great possessions, and the Amorites will eventually be judged for their sin. And to be clear, the Amorites 
are the people who are currently inhabiting the land that was promised to Abraham and his descendants, which we very creatively call the promised land. Okay? So the Amorites are sort of this wicked and corrupt people inhabiting the land that's already been promised to Abraham and his descendants. And essentially, God is giving them hundreds of years to repent and turn back to him. But ultimately, over that time, they're just going to grow more wicked and the Amorites will eventually be judged and removed from the promised land as Israel goes to enter it. But we aren't there yet. And in fact, things are only getting worse for the Hebrew people. We pick up in verse 15. This is Exodus 1, verse 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names I won't try to pronounce, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. How's that for some civil disobedience? Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They're vigorous and they give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but every girl may live. So now, they're enslaved, and Pharaoh, one of the most powerful men in the world, is ordering genocide. And yet, somehow, the Israelites continue to survive and multiply. And as our story progresses, one of these Hebrew baby boys, slated for death, is placed in a basket and hidden so that he won't be killed. And as he's in this basket in the Nile, he's found by Pharaoh's wife and adopted in to the royal household. And she names him Moses. And fast forward a bit, and as Moses becomes an adult, He finds out about his history. He finds out that he used to be one of these Hebrew slaves. That in fact, those are the people he belongs to. And and fast forward a little further, and he's, he's out in the desert as a shepherd with a flock, and, and God calls him to be the leader of his people, to, to lead his people out of Slavery. This is the start of chapter 3, if you turn a page or two over. This is chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. 
Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Remember all that stuff that happened 400 years ago. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. The Lord, oh, crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out, of, out to the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, and probably some other ites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And after some resistance, am I doing that? Um, After some resistance from Moses, that's exactly what he ends up doing. So uh, Moses uh, goes to Pharaoh with uh, nothing but the staff in his hand. He has no army, no authority, no power. And he says very famously, hey, let my people go. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. In other words, who's God? That doesn't mean anything to me. Go home. And what ensues from this moment forward is an escalating battle between Pharaoh's will and God's will, between Pharaoh's power and God's power. And in a very real sense, becomes a battle between the gods of Egypt and the God of the universe. And so from here forward, God is going to start bringing different plagues or calamities on Egypt. And he uh, turns the Nile to blood. And he uh, brings frogs, like lots and lots of frogs. Uh, and, And he brings gnats and he brings flies and he kills livestock and he brings boils and he uh, brings hail. And each and every time, uh, Pharaoh's, uh, Pharaoh refuses to let the Israelites go. His heart actually grows harder over time, not softer. And, and so God keeps upping the ante and, and applying more pressure and more pressure and more pressure until he can pry the Israelites out of the iron grip of Pharaoh. And with the uh, 10th and final plague, which we'll talk more about next week, uh, he f- Pharaoh's will uh, finally breaks and the Israelites are freed from slavery. And just as God said, God makes the Egyptians favorably disposed to the Israelites. And as they are marching out of Egypt as a sort of column of freed slaves, the Israelites give them gifts and gold and silver and jewelry. And you can almost think of this as like reparations for their time in slavery, repayment for all of their 
labor. Uh, and, and sure enough, God is freeing them and blessing them and bringing them out of Egypt and up toward the promised land. In the meantime, many of you know the story, Pharaoh changes his mind uh, yet again, and he tries to recapture them. And so God parts the Red Sea and then causes it to collapse back in on uh, Pharaoh's army as this sort of final act of judgment and liberation. And so eventually, uh, the Israelites find themselves on the other side of the Red Sea, uh, completely free from slavery. And what lies ahead for them is a covenant with God on Mount Sinai and 40 years in the desert before finally entering the promised land. The Exodus, this liberation from slavery and release from Egypt in many ways was like the the birthing process of a new nation. And you can almost picture God uh, like a midwife who's bringing forth this new life, who's bringing this uh, baby into the world. And so through attention and plagues and judgment, uh, they are at last released. And he takes this fragile group of slaves and he brings them out into the desert to make them his own nation and his own people. And so year after year, Israel is going to look back to this glorious moment when God moved in power and and freed them from slavery. And year after year, they look back and celebrate who God is and his heart to free them and this um, glorious birth of their nation that they experienced. In fact, in six weeks, Jewish people all over the world will come together to celebrate this key moment in their history, their exodus from slavery. And so as we journey through the Bible in a year, and not only do I want us to grasp the gravity of this moment, uh, what it means, uh, its significance in the biblical storyline, its significance for the nation of Israel, but... I also want us to see how Exodus becomes not just a historical event, which it is, but it also becomes an image for what is to come. It was a formational moment for Israel, but it's also really helpful in understanding Jesus and his role in history. In some ways, uh, Israel's experience in the Exodus can be sort of uh, extrapolated out and compared to humanity's slavery, liberation, and future hope. And so uh, with all of that Exodus imagery in mind, I I want us to shift now uh, our attention to Jesus and the New Testament writings because the New Testament actually celebrates Jesus as sort of this new Moses leading God's new covenant people on a new Exodus. And if we understand the original Exodus, then it will only enhance our appreciation of the second exodus. 
Here's what I mean. Uh, Jesus comes as the new Moses, as the greatest prophet in a long line of prophets who comes just like God in the Exodus to bring judgment on the ruler of this world. The scriptures say that Satan or the adversary is, quote, the God of this age and the ruler of this world, end quote. He is the ultimate pharaoh, the ultimate slave driver. And in a fallen world, humanity is actually born into slavery under his power. The day that we're born, we're actually subject to Satan, sin, and death. That's just the default human experience. And and so God brings judgment on Satan, specifically at the cross, where the head of the serpent is crushed, and at the same time, he strikes Jesus' heel, so to speak, and Jesus dies in the process. But through Jesus' death and resurrection, he is said to have conquered Satan, to have conquered sin, to have conquered death itself. He judges Satan at the cross. And in fact, he judges sin within his own body. And he conquers death through his resurrection. And after this judgment, God calls his new people out of slavery to Satan, sin, and death. And out into the desert so to speak, where we are formed into a new people in a new relationship with God in what he calls a new covenant. And so there's a sense in which this new Moses is leading God's new covenant people out of slavery. Judgment is brought against sin and evil and the Pharaoh of this world And and this miraculous event takes place at the cross and resurrection. And now we are being led out as this uh, procession of freed slaves, liberated by God, blessed by him along the way, in covenant relationship. But just like the Israelites in the desert, we haven't arrived yet. We're still in tension. We're still in this in-between place of having freedom, but still being out here in the desert, so to speak. We're free. We have God's presence with us, leading us, guiding us. We have God's blessing. He promises to provide our daily bread as he did for Israel in the desert. He's leading us on this journey, but we haven't yet arrived. We, like Abraham, like Isaac, like the Israelites in the desert, are still waiting. Waiting to inherit what God has promised, the new heavens and the new 
earth, the ultimate promised land. And so we sit in the tension of the present and we're free and we're blessed by God, but also longing for that eternal city, that land which is yet to come where God will reign in full. But in the meantime, we're still confronted with sickness, with death, with heartache, with sin and evil in the world. And the writers of the Old and New Testaments, they they picked up on this imagery. Habakkuk, one of the Old Testament prophets, says that one day God will return and repeat what he did in the Exodus by wiping evil off the face of the map, but saving his anointed king, his Messiah, and all those who have followed him. Another exodus is coming. The uh, writer of Hebrews in the New Testament draws a direct comparison between Moses and Jesus And then he draws a direct comparison between the Israelites in the desert and followers of Jesus today. Why? These authors are pointing to the Exodus as a means of encouraging us toward our future. They're saying that what happened then and there to Israel is happening here and now to you and me. Jesus is leading us out of slavery and into the desert where we patiently await our ultimate entry into the promised land. But we haven't arrived yet. And the author of Hebrews says, remember Remember the Israelites in the desert. Some of them lost faith. Some of them got discouraged. Some of them actively rebelled against God. Some of them wanted to go back to Egypt and and put themselves back under the benefits that slavery offered there. And so our understanding of the Exodus actually becomes a powerful lens through which we view life in the here and now. Because I don't know about you, but I'm guilty of every one of those responses. Here we are in the desert. There's evil in the world. There's bits of evil left in our own hearts. There's heartache and frustration and pain. There's hunger and thirst. There's temptation and and this almost daily battle with sin. There's the difficulty of following Jesus in, in a culture that constantly rejects him. And I don't know about you, but I've had plenty of days where I feel discouraged. I've had plenty of days when I'm lacking in my faith. And and I don't actively rebel against God in the true sense of the word. But when evil comes into my life, 
or the life of the people I love and rears its ugly head, I, I certainly question where God is in all of it and what he's up to. God, why this? Why the desert? What about the promised land? There are days when temptation hits so hard that I've actually wondered what it would be like to go back. I spent the first 20 years of my life identifying as an atheist. And at the core of my life, um, something was missing. There was sort of this emptiness in, in, in the core of who I was. Um, I, I didn't really have any lasting hope. But my goodness, life was fun. And it was laid back. And if I'm being totally honest, it was just a lot easier. There were elements of my former slavery that were actually very appealing. Just like you've got the Israelites in the desert saying, hey, can we just go back to Egypt? At least we ate meat and we had homes. What do we have now? And, and I read that and I think, man, those guys were so dumb. He just freed them. Why on earth would you go back? And then I start thinking through my life and my battle with temptation and my battle with lust. And, and sometimes you're in the desert and you think, what if I just go back? What, what if I could be reinserted back into the matrix, back into slavery, back into that? It had its benefits. Do you remember the benefits what if I didn't have to fight anymore? What if I could just give in and life was just laid back and easy going and it was all about pleasure and fun? And on those days, I, I tend to forget the hopelessness that I carried. Sometimes I forget the reality of what it was like to be enslaved to Satan, to sin, to death. And on those days, somehow I just remember the good times. Have you ever done that before? Well, I know that God miraculously freed me from the cross, but discipleship is hard. And what about Egypt? Remember that? Was that really that bad? to be in slavery? The reason that we meditate on the Exodus account and the reason that future biblical authors compare it to this age is not only because it gives us the perspective to choose freedom over slavery, I need to read that because through the Exodus, I see how ridiculous 
to go back now. I gain the perspective to see that going back to slavery is ridiculous. And yes, discipleship is hard. But when the author of Hebrews draws the comparison, what he's saying is, hey, don't give up. You're in the desert. I know it's not easy. I know you'd rather be somewhere else, but remember what lies ahead of you. Don't don't turn around. Don't look back toward Egypt. I want you to lift your eyes. I want you to look to the horizon. I want you to see what's coming. When depression hits, when your friend dies, when the relationship that you knew you could count on crumbles in your hands, when your dreams fall apart, when temptation is slamming at the door, demanding that you cave, where do you look? Did you look forward or do you look back? Because the trials of this life, our time in the desert, wasn't meant to point you back to Egypt. It was meant to point you forward. The trials of this life aren't supposed to stir at memories of the good old days, of slavery and youth, no. They're meant to stir up a hunger, not for what's behind you, but for what lies ahead of you. To that future place where at last all of our enemies will be defeated. There will be no more sin, no more Satan, no more death, no more crying or pain. Jesus says of that place that our joy will be complete, fulfilled, overwhelming, overflowing, and nothing will take that joy away. The Apostle Paul says that the sorrow of this life, your time in the desert, is not even worth comparing to the glory that is to come. And so the message of so much of the Old Testament is, hey, don't give up. Don't look Back. Don't run back to that land of slavery. Lift your eyes. Look forward. Let God lead you by faith to the land that lies ahead of you. The new heavens and the new earth. The land that God has promised that you will inherit as you follow after him. We'll end with this. These are God's words spoken to Moses in the book of Exodus, shortly after the burning bush. Uh, I think we may have skipped one. 
God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, or Yahweh, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Those were God's words to the enslaved Israelites. And I want to read them a second time, only reworded a bit, as I imagine God might speak them to his church. And we're not in the habit of of rewording or rewriting scripture. But I want us to imagine what that same God might say to us today. God also says to his church, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them as I have to you. I have heard the groaning of humanity, enslaved to Satan's sin and death, and I am inviting them into a new covenant. Therefore, say to the church, I am the Lord, and I have brought you out from under the yoke of Satan, sin, and death. I have freed you from being slaves to them, and I have redeemed you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment." I have taken you as my own people, and I will be with you, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of this world. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, an eternal land, the new heavens and the new earth. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you this morning, broken people, fragile people, uh, people who can in many ways identify with the Israelites in the desert. And that that we too yearn for that promised land and and even wonder, what are we even doing here? What are we doing in the desert? 
Why are we still faced with sickness and heartache and pain and death? God, how long? And God, as we um, continue in worship this morning, I pray that you would touch the hearts of the weary. I think of how many of the Israelites were weary. I think of how many of us get weary of doing good, get weary of following after you, Jesus. Some of us just are in that season right now where it just feels so hard. Can't we just go back? And yet, Jesus, you're here with us in the power of the Spirit in a way that's even more significant, I'll argue, than the way you were with the Israelites in the desert. So too you're here with us. God, and and you say that the burden you've asked us to carry is, is actually a light one. And so I pray for those who are weary this morning. I pray for the brokenhearted. I pray for the hurting. I pray for those uh, who are sitting in the midst of evil and pain and just wrestling with the questions and wondering how long, how many years, how many decades until we enter the promised land. And so God, I pray that you would uh, encourage the weary this morning, that you would lift up those who who are stumbling, who are in that season where maybe they just want to give up. Maybe more of their, their thoughts wander to what lies behind them than to what lies ahead of them. And God, would you use us as a body, as a family, in line with with Megan's vision, to link arm in arm? Would our time in the desert be the time when we say, we need each other? I cannot do this alone because I'm I'm going to stumble. I'm going to look back to Egypt. But God, thank you for giving us one another and for uniting us under you, that we can can link arm and arm as Megan said, and and walk forward together. And that when someone stumbles and falls, we don't leave them. We don't don't give them directions back to Egypt. We 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 pick one another up and, and we move forward together. God, encourage the weary in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.